The text for the message this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, 1 through 14. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit for forty days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing in those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give his angels charge of you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and a report concerning him went out through all the surrounding country. In another place, Jesus said, The devil was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, and there is no truth in him. By nature, a murderer, and by nature, a liar. That's Satan, the one with whom we have to do. But we don't always see it very clearly. Last Thursday, the day I usually take off, Noel and I took about uh, three hours out of our day off to go visit computer shops downtown Minneapolis. Thought I would poke around to see if there might be some kind of word processing equipment I could someday afford. And was an amazing experience. My first foray into the big world of computer life. Went to the library first and read the uh, latest consumer reports on word processing. And then we visited four stores and came home with a big sack of colorful brochures. Computers are like sex, I discovered. There's, uh, there's something in us that they can hook into and hold on to. Computers are like a romance or an epic or an adventure which has come true right before our very eyes. They combine mystery and power and precision and beauty. They're exciting. They're new. They've got open-ended possibilities. Our culture is going to be irreversibly transformed by the microcomputer revolution. Every one of you will have one in your home by 1994 because prices are going to fall the uses are going to expand it'll be as common as the telephone I don't doubt but for now they are strange and wonderful things and one of the effects that they can have on Christians 
is to make Christians begin to feel that spiritual things aren't very real or exciting. They can't compare to these wonders. You can touch a computer. You can see a computer. It'll talk back to you. It'll solve your problems instantaneously. It has a powerful fascination. But the Bible, the Bible speaks largely of unseen things. They don't force themselves onto your senses. They talk about things often way off in the past or way off in the future sometimes. You've all experienced it, haven't you, with a new gadget or a toy or appliance. Either you bring it home or you come home with a bundle of literature all about it. Literature of half read about word processing. How easy is it to take it and lay it aside and with all your heart open the Bible and listen to the voice of God? Let me ask another question to put beside that one. If you were laid low with kidney failure this week and a congested heart and were told by the doctor three days at the most unless we use extraordinary measures and we don't think that would be wise. Which would you prefer? Would you ask your family to sit by your bed and read the latest program developments of IBM or the Bible? What's happened? What happens in those minutes after the doctor walks out of the room and leaves you with the imminency of your death? What happens to that gripping fascination of RAM, ROM, CPU, CPM, PC, DOS, multicolor monitors and perfect writer and profit plan? What happens? What happens is that here at the end of your journey through the valley of life, the haze of the computer craze just gets blown away. And all of a sudden, you see, perhaps for the first time in your life, the lucid reality of the mountains of eternity just ahead. You look back on that fog falling away into the valley, and you wonder how you could have been so entranced, so captivated, so swallowed up in the mechanical functions of a man-made machine. And you look ahead and you see the spectacular peaks and the awful ravines and the unapproachable crags of those mountains and you wonder how that could have played such an insignificant role in your life. But not only the mountains, not only the mountains ahead, in this short distance that you have to traverse between your hospital bed now and those mountains, you look off to the sides. And on this side, you see thick green grass and trees with luscious fruit and crystal streams and darting fish and a huge white dove hovering 
in midair over it all. And then you look to this side and you see a wasteland of half-eaten corpses and cracked riverbeds and dry ashes and lurking in the midst of it a huge, gaunt, hungry lion with his shoulder blades sticking up through his mangy fur and his big eyes looking you right in the face. And all of a sudden, in one immeasurable moment, you discover what life has been really all about in the midst of all the hazes of computers and trinkets and toys and cars and houses and business. The real issue of life becomes real clear. Namely, a battle for your soul between the dove who gives life and the lion who destroys. So this morning I've come to proclaim to you that whatever has entranced you, whatever has captivated you, whatever enthralls you, if it dulls your sensitivity to the mountains of eternity, if it somehow encloses you with a haze so that you don't feel what is really at stake every day in your life between the lion and the dove, it's an illusion from hell. Luke chapter 3. Verses 21 to 22. I want us to see Christ in combat today so that our lives can be cleared away of whatever haze is blinding us to the combat that we face. Let's go back, though, to chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. We have a record of Jesus' baptism. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form as a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. When Jesus came to be baptized along with all the people who were repenting and aligning themselves with God, it was as though the commander-in-chief left the Pentagon, crossed the ocean, strapped on his helmet, fixed his bayonet, and jumped into the trenches with the rest of us. When Satan approached, crossed the plains with all his armor and tanks, it was Jesus who leaped out first and did battle both to save us and to demonstrate for us how to do battle. But before we look at the battle, look what Luke inserts between the baptism and the temptation. Namely, the genealogy of Jesus. An odd thing to do. And I think there's a reason for it. Matthew records the genealogy of Jesus right off the bat at the front of his gospel, where you might expect it. Also, Matthew just takes the genealogy back to Abraham. There are two big differences for Luke. Luke inserts it here right after the baptism where Jesus is proclaimed Son of God, right before the temptation where he is tested as the Son of God, and he takes it back to Adam who is said to be a Son of God. And all of that is not accidental. That's craft 
on the part of our writer, Luke. And I think the point of his arrangement is something like this. Adam had a unique sonship in relation to God. He was not the son of any human parents. Jesus, however, has a greater unique sonship as the divine Son of the Most High, virgin born, as we saw last week. Adam has a unique relationship to all humanity as the one from whom humanity comes. Jesus has a unique, greater relationship to a new humanity which he is about to form and redeem and lead. Adam was tested and failed in his test. Jesus will be tested, will not fail in his test, and will therefore conquer. Adam led the whole human race into misery. Jesus will lead all those who fight with him into glory. So there's a tremendous thing at stake as we go into this temptation account. If Jesus fails, he's simply another old Adam There will be no new people of God and the lion will devour the whole world and the crystal stream and the green grass and the fruit trees and the darting fish will be consumed in the judgment and there will be no paradise for anybody. Everything is at stake on this encounter between Jesus and the evil one. And if he succeeds in his combat with the lion, then he's going to liberate a new people, a people who learn from him what is real on Nicollet Mall, and a people who learn from him how to do battle with Satan and all of his hazes, and a people who will live with him someday in a world just as surely renewed as the Mount St. Helens this very day is being renewed with new trees springing up and animals returning and the lakes becoming crystal clear again. Luke 4, 1 to 14, in the wilderness, beyond the Jordan, our commander in chief, fighting in the trench with us, turns back the enemy and teaches us how to do it. So let's watch him in action. Luke 4, verses 1 and 2, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing in those days. Let's just stop there. Jesus is 30 years old. I love that. Because, uh, you know what that means? He's eight years younger than I am. And a lot of you think I'm just a kid. (laughs) And you're right. In many ways. But I just love to think about Jesus Purchasing the world at 33. Oh, young people, please don't let anyone despise your youth. Jesus bought you when he was 33. Three years he has, and he knows it. He knows that his time is short. He calculated his trek to Jerusalem. He knows that at the end of it there is torment and suffering and death. How shall he begin his ministry? There are four things in these two verses. One, he begins full of the Holy Spirit. 
There's a great mystery here. I don't, I don't claim to uh, have it all down by any means. I don't understand fully how the members of the Trinity interrelate with each other, let alone interrelate when one of them has become the God-man combining a human nature and a divine nature. But can we not at least say this from Scripture, that the divine nature of Jesus does not so cancel out his human nature that he as a man does not avail himself of the power available in the Holy Spirit that all the rest of us human beings avail ourselves of. It's plain from Scripture that Jesus in his human nature avails himself of the power of the Holy Spirit and is filled with the Spirit, which I take to mean something like this. He is filled with the love of his Father. He is filled with the marvel of his own mission. He is filled with the hope of his own destiny. The second thing we notice is that in the fullness of this Holy Spirit, he is led into solitude for 40 days. He, he left family. He left friends. He left crowds. He left everything and went away for six weeks, almost. Six weeks, no radio, no television. No billboards, no family, nobody to talk to. And Luke 5.16 shows that he did that at other times too. This wasn't a solitary experience. Why? Here's my guess, and I can't think of any other reason. It must be that preparation for ministry demands significant times of solitude. If you aim to enter combat with the evil one and win, there must be solitude in your life. I have learned, I think you would agree, we simply can't maintain a radical God-centeredness under the constant barrage of human interaction. If all your time is spent with other people you can't maintain a God-centeredness. It becomes obscured. I regard Sunday morning from 8.30 to 12.15 as the most important hours of my life. The main purpose of my life, therefore, can be defeated or fulfilled depending on whether or not the touch of the dove and the fullness of the Holy Spirit is what I bring to this pulpit. Woe to me, therefore, if there is no solitude on Saturday, except in unusual circumstances, almost all of Friday and all of Saturday is solitude for me in preparation for this encounter on Sunday morning. And I regard Saturday nights as especially sacred so that all of you who have dinners and parties and get-togethers on Saturday night will know why I never show up or ever will. And I urge all of you to find in your life a pattern of personal solitude that keeps you centered on God. You must have it. You cannot maintain 
a radical God-centeredness without it. And the third thing in these verses is that during those 40 days of solitude, he didn't eat anything. He fasted. Why? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All good things he richly furnishes to him to enjoy. Why did he deny himself these legitimate pleasures and needs of food for 40 days? To demonstrate that he was not enslaved to anything but God. Your spiritual power will be weakened to the degree that you cannot say no to your bodily appetites. Your spiritual power will be weakened to the degree that you cannot say no to your bodily appetites. You know that when you fail in an act of self-denial, you have no power to step out and declare anything credible to an unbeliever. You all know that. You've experienced it. Just like I have. Physical appetites are not evil. Jesus got hungry. But when they usurp the rule in your body, your spiritual power declines. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I pommel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be a castaway. There is a very close relationship to whether we have our bodies subdued and whether we will be of any use in the ministry. Forty days, Jesus pommeled his body to certify and demonstrate that his appetite for food and for sex gave no foothold, not a toehold to Satan. Praise God for the victory Jesus wrought over his appetites for us. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be so filled with the food of God that even after 40 days of hunger, He says no to Satan's temptation. Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Which means, conquer your bodily addictions with spiritual addictions. There is no other long-term way to conquer your addictions. You send the demon of gluttony out the front door and seven more will come right in the back door if you don't fill the house with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was so full from the start that no demon ever had a toehold in his life of discipline. And the fourth thing in these two verses is that while he was in solitude, 
fasting in the wilderness, he was tempted by the devil. Notice, Luke does not say that only at the end, in the three biggies, was he tempted. Luke says, for 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. For 40 days he was in combat with the enemy, defending himself in the power of the Holy Spirit against self-pity and loneliness and fear and the pain of his fasting and murmuring against God, which the Israelites failed to pass the test with in the wilderness. Now here you can count on it. Now I don't have to tell you saints about this, but I'll remind you because it always feels good to be reminded about what you know is true. You know that once you have opened yourself to the Holy Spirit in His fullness, once you have declared that you are going to lead a life of simplicity and disciplined for the kingdom, and once that you have resolved to live for the good of other people in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be attacked every day, day in, day out, by the devil. The gaunt lion of destruction and the dove that gives life will vie for you without fail. And Luke closes with three examples here of the kinds of temptation that Satan brought against Jesus. Let's look at them quickly. Verse 3. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. That's the first one. Second, verses 5 through 7. To you, well, he takes him and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it shall all be yours. And finally, in verses 9 to 11, Satan took him up on the pinnacle of the temple and he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give His angels charge of you on their hands. They will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now those temptations are amazingly relevant for American Christianity today. Satan skips right over adultery, fornication, stealing, lying, murder. He doesn't go into the back streets of Jerusalem, bring some prostitute out into the wilderness and present her to Jesus. There, surely you're hungry. Those are games for sub-devils with weak saints. Jesus is no fall guy. When Satan means business with a strong saint, he sticks with religion and he uses the Bible for his textbook. See if this doesn't sound contemporary. If you are a child of God, evangelical, why are you living like a pauper? If you are a child of the king, You ought to live like a prince. The children of the king don't eat casseroles. They eat steak. The children of the king don't shop at Ragstock. They shop on the mall. The children of the king don't drive second-hand clunkers. They get new cars every year. 
The children of the king don't throw their life away in Liberia, Cameroon, Ecuador, Japan, living on a shoestring, storing up nothing for the future, so they have to be like paupers the rest of their life. If you're a child of the king, claim your blessings. God has promised to send His angels to make you healthy, wealthy, prosperous. Throw yourself into the blessings of your status. If you want to be a good testimony to the world of being a child of the king, then become wealthy and have the best of everything. That's Satan. Pure and simple. Satan's one aim in the wilderness. He had only one aim. To keep Jesus Christ from suffering. He was willing to let him rule the world. If he just wouldn't win it on the cross, he was willing to let him use all his divine power miraculously. If he just would use it to escape hunger and suffering, he was willing to let him go before all the worshipers in the temple courts and demonstrate his messiahship if only the angels would keep him from suffering. Whatever you do, sub-devils, don't let this man and his people suffer. Do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples when he was on his way to Jerusalem? The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and elders, be killed. And Peter said, God forbid, we won't let it happen. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You see Satan's goal? It is so clear. Whatever you do, don't let the Son of Man suffer. And you know what Satan's goal is for Bethlehem and for the evangelical church in this country? in which he is having stunning success to keep us from hearing the Word of God which says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me to Calvary. People sometimes ask, if Satan is real, why do we see more demon possession and exorcisms in America? How come we just hear about that from Indonesia? I got an idea. Satan holds American Christianity so tightly in the vice grip of comfort and wealth that he's not about to tip his pan with too much demonic tomfoolery. What Satan fears most at Bethlehem is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that causes you and me to say with Paul, I count everything as refuse in order that I might know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His agonies becoming conformed to Him in His death. Now, lest there be any misunderstanding, 
let's go back to the hospital room. You have three days to live. The haze has been blown away. Over here, the thick green grass, the trees with rich fruit, the crystal streams, the darting fish, and over here, the wasteland of half-eaten corpses and ashes and cracked riverbeds and an ugly, gaunt, devouring lion. Would you conclude from this passage of Scripture that it is the call of the Christian to sit in the grass and dangle his feet in the water until Jesus comes? The message of the morning is so simple, it's so clear. When the Holy Spirit descends on you like a dove, in the power of the Spirit, with the hope of paradise, you follow Jesus into the wasteland of need in this world and simplify and strip for battle. Let it be a declaration that it is your intention not to sit and dangle your feet in the stream until Jesus comes.